Our departure from this life is absolutely certain. Nobody gets out of this world alive unless they're taken by the rapture. And according to Psalm 90, that's approximately 70 years. Therefore, we should, as it says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. There was one prudent saint of God, a man in his 60s, who had in his den a little blackboard. On it, he had chicken scratches, little chalk marks. A guest came over to his home and asked him, what do those marks mean that are on that little chalkboard there? And he said, every one of those marks represents a day. And it represents how many days I have left until I'm 70. And every day I wake up, I walk over, and I erase one of those marks to remind me to make the best use of every day that I have and to encourage me in the Lord. After that brother turned 70 years of age, he then continued with those marks, only now when someone asked him, he said, they are, he added days, reminding him of every day, basically he was living on borrowed time. There's a great irony, I think, in thinking like that. And that is that the more we think of the next world, or maybe the more that we think of death, actually, is the more prepared we are for life. It's a strange thing. But you actually can't think about heaven. We can't have a series on heaven without thinking about the event that gets us there. I sincerely believe if we would think about heaven more, if we would embrace death, really, I think the limited time that we have here would be spent a whole lot better. Instead of just building up another big pile of money or fame or whatever, we would really see the importance of life. And so today we're going to do an exposition of Psalm 90. I think you'll be encouraged. It's one of my favorite psalms in Scripture. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you today for this wonderful moment to speak and to look into your word. Lord, I love this passage. Thank you for good brother Moses, Lord, who left us this great treasure. Teach us, Lord, from this word in Christ's name. Amen. This is uh, springtime, and of course, all the baseball fans are out and about. Bob and Stan were good buddies, baseball friends. One day at a ball game, they made a vow to each other that whoever died first, that friend would send a message back to earth and let the other friend know if there was baseball in heaven. That's heaven to them. Sure enough, Bob died, and after a while, he sent a message back to earth. And to Stan, he said, hey, Stan, this is your old baseball buddy, Bob. I have good news for you, and I got some bad news for you, too. Stan thought about it and said, well, let's hear the good news first. Bob said, well, the good news is there's all kinds of baseball going on in heaven. Mickey Mantle is hitting, home runs a mile long, Babe Ruth is up here. It is baseball heaven. Stan smiled and said, well, what's the bad news? He said there was a long pause, and finally Bob spoke from heaven and said, the bad news is you're scheduled to pitch up here tomorrow night. (laughs) 
Well, the good news is here this morning, we have a wonderful word to look at. And so let's go into Psalm 90. Now, Moses is the author. He is the only psalm that he is the author of. Many people think that David wrote all the psalms, but that is not the case, although he wrote certainly the majority. Because Moses is the author, this is often looked at as being the oldest psalm. He certainly was the oldest human author who wrote a psalm. I think that in itself gives him a unique insight. He had wandered with people for 40 years, watching every one of them over the age of 20 die in the wilderness journeys, which has been oftentimes called the world's longest funeral march. During that time, he learned four important lessons about human mortality. And I think it really gives us a great and very healthy state of mind about thinking about death. First of all, Moses emits praise to the eternal power of God. Verses 1 and 2. Let's read these verses together, if you would, please. Ready? Verses 1 and 2. All right. Ready? Begin. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Now, coming to terms with our mortality is a mindset. And it's a mindset that begins with praise to an eternal God. Generations come and go, but God is still the same. Our eternal God exists above history itself. There's a great difference, actually, between being immortal and being eternal. The immaterial part of man, that spiritual part, that soulish part, is immortal. My friends, you will never die. Now, you will either never die and have a heavenly home or never die and have a hell home. But man's immaterial being is immortal. But God is eternal. That means he never had a beginning, and he certainly has no ending. Moses declares this when he said that God existed before the mountains. God existed before the mountains. You say, how did God exist before he created, and what was he doing? Well, he just existed from eternity to eternity. Do you remember what he said to Moses at another time? He said, Moses said, who are you? Who, who do I tell him sent me? And he said, you just tell him I am. What does that mean? His name is, I've always been here. I'm the God that always has been. He's not a created God like some of these Eastern religions. No, he is a God who is eternal. He was not created. There was certainly no before God created the universe. I mean, there was no before God. There was not even nothing. Someone said, what was before creation? Nothing? No, there wasn't even nothing. Because God exists in eternal time. In fact, God existed before there was time. God created time. He created matter and space. And really, there can be no time until there is first matter. Because time just um, um, quantifies the degeneration of matter in space. 
And so God actually existed before there was time. He created time. That means that in the beginning is when time actually begun. So God exists before the mountains. Yes, God existed before matter. He existed before space. He existed before time itself. You'd say, what does all that mean? It just simply means that God is absolutely eternal. And we can take uh, we can take comfort in the fact that God is eternal. We are dying, but God never dies. We are immortal in a soul, but our physical body dies, but God never dies. He is everlasting. He is ever living. And so any discussion about death has to include the fact that we acknowledge the fact that God was here. He's always been here. He is eternal. He is the creator of time itself. I can trust the one who has spoken to me words of assurances because he's the one who spoke about eternity itself. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, used Psalm 90, these first couple of verses, as the basis for that majestic hymn, O God, our help in ages past. And so this morning, if we're going to begin a discussion about what heaven is and what death is and how we should apply our hearts to wisdom and how preparing ourselves in this life is wise, then we have to begin with the fact, I'm just going to start by saying God is wise, God is great, He is eternal, He's before everything, He's after everything, and so I just start by saying praise be to God. And so the psalmist Moses emits praise to the eternal power of God. Number two, then he admits to the frail state of man in verses three through six. Let's go to verse three. Thou turnest man to destruction, just meaning death, really in judgment, and sayest, return ye children of men. God is not only eternal, he is creator. That means he has an incontestable right and power to deal with humanity as he pleases. Now, Scripture declares that every person has a choice. God doesn't just make you go to heaven, neither does he make a person go to hell. We have a choice. We can either accept or reject God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. But it is a choice that can only be made in this life. Once we have passed through that event called death into the afterlife, our choice is eternally and irrevocably filed away. Whether or not we die is not up for debate. Every person since Adam and Eve has died. The crucial question is, where will you spend eternity? Well, that question maybe could be answered by another question, and that is, was there ever a time when you put your complete trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, plus nothing, minus nothing? Is He your personal Savior? Now, the answer to that question determines your destiny. Death is the result of a universal disease called sin. And the universality of death is illustrated at every funeral. There are cemeteries in every state of this country, every country of the world. There is no country, no matter what, what they look like, no matter what their background is, every country Die, people die in those countries. Someone once said that a million bra graveyards proclaim with ceaseless voice 
that man is, Im- that man is mortal and that the living are dying. Now Moses continues. He points out the fact that we're going to have to meet God and there's a judgment coming, verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it's past and as a watch in the night. To look forward to heaven is to admit and to acknowledge that there's a huge disproportion between man and between God. Moses knew, in fact wrote about it, the Holy Spirit told him to write about it, the age of the patriarchs. Now Moses wasn't that old. He died at 120. But the patriarchs, some of them, lived to almost a thousand years. Folks, that's some serious long time. Now that occurred before the, the flood, but a thousand years? I'm not sure how old you are, but every year I get older, I imagine myself, I'm just saying, man, how can a person even live to be 80? Or how can they live to be 90? Or how do they live to be 100? I'm thinking, man, that's some serious stuff. Someone once said it's a dangerous thing to grow old. An elementary school class was photographed. The teacher was trying to persuade everybody to buy a copy of the group picture. Just think, she said, how nice it'll be to look at when you're all grown up. And you'll say, there's Jennifer. She's a lawyer now. And that's Michael. He's a doctor now. And a small back voice at the back of the room rang out. And there's teacher. She's dead now. <laughs> the fact is, we get old, don't we? And Moses is saying, man, you should, you, these guys were old, almost a thousand years old, and yet it is as nothing, God said. A thousand years is like one day to God. Someone, some writer very uh, artfully wrote, how long is eternity? He said, if a bird were to come and to sharpen his beak on Mount Everest once every million years, By the time it succeeded in wearing down the mountain to nothing, eternity would have not even begun. Folks, eternity is forever. Verse 5, thou carriedest them away as a flood. There is a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. Verse 6, in the morning it flourisheth and groweth up, and the evening it is cut down and withereth. Worldwide, three people every second. 180 people a minute, 11,000 people an hour, a quarter of a million people die every 24 hours. A quarter of a million. And that quarter of a million either go to heaven or go to hell. That doesn't stop, my friend. That's why God says we must continually do what we can to invite people and ask people and tell them about the Lord and live a, a holy life and to do what we can to make a difference because Mankind is frail. And then Moses uses three illustrations. First of all, mankind is like being caught in a flood, verse 5. A flood, carried away like a flood, continually streaming down the river of time into the ocean of eternity. Sometimes you drive around our area here and you see a little sign by one of the drainage openings. It'll say, don't throw anything toxic because it flows to the ocean. Because you can't stop it once it gets in those pipes, it's going to end up in the ocean. The fact is, I'm like one of those old cans. Once I get caught in that water, I mean, it's, gonna, it's not going to stop until we're out into that ocean of time. As soon as we're born, we begin to die. 
every day of our life, it carries us closer to death. Yes, we're further away from our birth, but we are closer to death every day. There is a time appointed. Then God said, not only is it like being caught in a flood, but he said, it's like a night of sleep. Hours will pass by. And they seem like just minutes. You know, you'll go to sleep and you'll wake up and you think, man, I haven't slept at all. You look at the clock, good night, two or three hours. I've often wondered why God made people have to sleep. I mean, we think about it, it's just such a waste of time. And I've tried to limit my sleep to the point where you could really get more done. I found out you can only do that for a while. And pretty soon it catches up. Because we just we are made with these decaying bodies and our time just passes away. And those who get older realize they look back and think, how in the world did I get here? I remember asking my dad when he was in his 70s, and I guess I must have been in my 20s approximately or early 30s, and he said, uh, and I asked him this question, I said, Dad, what does it feel like to be 70? And what do you think about? I mean, do you feel different than like when you were my age? I remember him saying, you know, I don't really feel like I feel any different. Like I still have the same views, you know, hopefully more holy and sanctified views, but you know, I still have some, all the same emotions and same feeling. The fact is, although you just wake up and you think, where did five decades go? I was just 20 yesterday. And now here I am, 70 years old. The fact is, the Bible says that hours pass by, and it's as though they were minutes. Days pass by, and all of a sudden, look at us. Where did we get, how did we get here? It's like a night of sleep. And then he says it's like grass, verses 5 and 6. In the morning, you look at that little volunteer grass that comes up. You know, you look out there after maybe the a rain and the grass comes up. And it's vibrant and green and flourishing. And by the, that evening, a mower will come along and cut it down, or the, there's no water to keep it alive, and it just dwindles. Last uh, summer, we watched them clear out the vineyard that was next to us of any excess and unwanted vegetation. They were changing out the plants, and so they were getting rid of all the things that weren't meant to be there, and among them was a huge pecan tree. I mean, the biggest pecan tree I've ever seen, 60 or 70 feet tall, massive trunk, huge roots. They had this excavator. I have no idea how big it was, but it came along with its big old mouth and grabbed that thing and shook it, and I mean, it took days to cut it and to pull out that trunk and to pull out that big root ball and then they tried to grind it with a big machine. They tried to chainsaw it. They tried to hammer it with the teeth of the bucket. I mean, they did everything they could. They got rid of everything but that trunk. Finally, they just decided they couldn't do anything. Couldn't even put it on a, on a flatbed. Didn't know where to dispose of it. And so they just pushed it over to the side. It's still sitting there. I mean, that's a big old giant pecan tree. Well, let me tell you, we are not pecan trees. We are like grass, God said. We just come and we're gone. I mean, whew, just what happened to old Tim Pollock? He was here and then he's gone. Old age comes so quick. You may have seen or at least heard of the book called, or the movie called The Bucket List. Jack Nicholson started it. I'm not a big fan of Jack Nicholson, other than the fact he's a great actor. But he started that book uh, or that movie called The Bucket List. The story is about two terminally ill men 
who leave a cancer ward for a mad trip to do everything they've ever wanted to do before they kick the bucket, hence the name of the, uh, the movie. Since then, people have uh, talked about things that are on their bucket list. But it's an interesting story Jack Nicholson, the actor, tells after making that movie. He said he began to wrestle with his own mortality. It really made him think about what he was doing. You know, the fact is, we all should get a bucket list because we are just marching towards that event called death. And we are going to face death. And whether you think so or not, it's going certainly to come. Now, there are many people today who have said that they have faced death, and some even say they died, and they, they actually died, and they saw this bright light, or it was bluish, or they talked with somebody, or they had this warm feeling, and many people have these uh, death, post-death experiences. In fact, it's become so popular, there's all kinds of books now, and they become oftentimes bestsellers because people want to know what's on the other side. And supposedly these people who've died and come back can maybe give us some insight into what's going on in the other world. There's no book that's been more popular than that book called To Heaven and Back. In it, four-year-old Colton takes a three-minute trip to heaven. There he claims, uh, according to the author at that time, to have seen Jesus, uh, seen Father God who has wings on him, John the Baptist, uh, the Holy Spirit who's bluish in color. He met family members that uh, he hadn't known before. Ten million copies were sold. Sadly, just a few years later, the little boy uh, and the father recanted, said it was all made up, it was just a story. And uh, I just surprisingly just read this last week. They're still trying to get the publisher to, uh, to issue a statement that it was all false. Now, whether these experiences are real, whether they actually saw something or didn't see something, really, we can't say. I mean, that's that person's experience they had. And if it makes a person accept Jesus Christ and accepts, makes them love the Bible more and makes them a better person, then I say hallelujah. However, sadly, it often isn't the case. And let me say two things, two takeaways from that, and you can maybe just write these, write these down. And that is, when anybody talks about that, remember, there's always a difference between being mostly dead and dead. Because a person who is mostly dead is slightly alive. <laughs> and Hebrews chapter 9 says, it is appointed unto man once to die wants to die. Nobody dies two times or three times. If you die, trust me, you're not coming back. Nobody dies and comes back. It just doesn't work that way. It is appointed once to die. Now, that person may have had a vision. They may have had a near-death experience, but they did not die. Number two, the Bible is always sufficient for everything we know about heaven and God. Amen. It is, it is uh, a, these people who have claimed to see a beam of light. And I remind you that Paul said that Satan masquerades himself as what? 
an angel of what? Light. And I think that really comes to real, the wisdom of that statement bears out when you hear people who've had these experiences come back and say, I saw the light and I learned there's no hell. All people are welcome. Every religion is true. And I remind you that that absolutely cannot be true because Jesus issued an exclusive statement. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to heaven but through me. It's not through Buddha. It's not through you know, any religion. It's not even by being a Baptist or anything. It's through Jesus Christ. And so any person who claims to have seen a light or whatever and comes back and says something that is non-biblical, you can know that message is 100% flawed. And so in regards to those who say they've seen heaven and come back, just remember the Bible gives us everything we need to know. Number three, Moses then submits to the wise plan of God. Verse seven, we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath we are troubled. Eight, thou hast set our iniquities before thee and our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath, and we spend our years as a tale that is told. Notice verse 1 says, we are troubled by the thoughts of death. Very understandable to fear death. And it's especially understandable for the unbelievers to fear death. In fact, the Bible teaches that an unbeliever is often in bondage to that fear of death. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15, Jesus came to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Most people live with a mortal fear of death. I'm going to die. You're going to die. Someone's going to die. Folks, for believers, we conquer that. We don't like the process, (laughs) but the fear of death, no. Johnny Erickson Tata expressed those thoughts that while death is fearful, it's the process that I worry about. She said, I look at my own degenerating body and wonder, will it be short? Will it be sweet, long, or agonizing? Will my husband be able to take care of me? Will I be in a nursing home? I'm not so much afraid of death as I am dying. And the fear of death often makes us wonder about what's going to happen next. There was an epitaph in an old tombstone in an Indiana cemetery. And it served, I think, as a great reminder about the reality of death. Here's what the epitaph said. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. An unknown visitor came to the cemetery and saw the tombstone and scrawled a poignant reply. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) (laughs) The fact is, we better be afraid of death because there is a judgment. Verse 10, the days of our years are threescore and ten. If by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. (laughs) I love that little song that we sing, fly, I'm just going to fly away. And that's exactly what happens. 
The Bible says that ever since the flood, men's, mankind lives 70 or 80 years. A few exceed that, but that's basically the length of what we live. I have to laugh because I always read, like I read this week, scientists are now saying that they are working on things that will extend life well beyond 120, as if you wanted to live that long, but they are working on fixing the problem of aging. (laughs) It's not a problem, folks. It's a fact. But anyway, this is a new mission of Silicon Valley. In fact, they are pouring billions, folks, billions into these biotech firms to hack what they call the code of life. And they're convinced that they have found a way to turn back aging. There's only one problem with that. And that is absolutely in contradiction of what God said. The truth is, people say, you know, well, how can you say that, Pastor? People are living longer than they ever have. Really? They are? Are you sure? Fact is, the Bible says people live 70 or 80 years. It's never changed since Moses. Christian doctor who writes on medical ethics a lot, Franklin E. Payne. Dr. Payne, anyway, um, he said in his book on biblical medical ethics, in a classic book, I have it in my files, love it, I read a lot of things on medicine, I'm intrigued by it, he said it's a funny thing about life expectancy, typical life expectancy now in America is about 75, give or take, but do you know how they factor that in, they actually factor life expectancy by counting the number of infant mortality. He said ever since abortion has kicked in, it's a funny thing, life expectancy has gone up because they don't count in all those. He said if you counted in the abortion deaths, life expectancy comes to about 43 years of age. The fact is, folks, it's a ruse. Nobody lives longer than 70 or 80. It's just a fact. They can, I read an article this week, I told Pauline, I kept rereading it thinking, is this a joke? They were saying, if you drink wine, you will live longer. Medical studies, or excuse me, the opposite, you will will cut your life down. And I thought, I'm going to read this because, you know, I'm a, you know me, man, I'm, I'm dead against alcohol. I thought, well, I'll get me some ammunition to cut your life short. So I read it. It said, if you drink alcohol, you will cut your life short by 30 minutes. <laughs> I was like, 30 minutes? Are you serious? I re- kept reading the article. It's a joke, right? It said it like four or five times, 30 minutes shorter. I thought, man, I'm going to go out and get me a big old giant jug of red wine then right now. I'm 30 minutes? Who cares? No, I'm just kidding you, but... The fact is, folks, it's ridiculous. You know, I'm all for living healthy, and I think it's a better way to live. But, folks, the fact of the matter is, the Bible says it's appointed unto man to die. There's an appointment, and I'm not going to change that appointment unless the Bible says the only way you can change that is by obeying your parents. So it says the only Commandment with promise is that if you honor, actually you honor your parents. Verse 11, 
Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear? So is thy wrath. God said, <laughs> Moses is saying, trust me, I've been there. You don't want to mess with God. It is a silly thing to mock sin and to make light of Jesus Christ. Who knoweth the power of the anger of God? God said, you need to have a fear of God. That'll help you in your life. Number one, he admits praise to the eternal power of God. Number two, he admits to the frail state of man. Number three, he submits to the wise plan of God. And finally, he commits to prayer for the help of God. Starting in verse number 12, he said, now, given the fact we're going to die, given the fact we have 70 years, it doesn't change. No one's going to live to be, you know, 130 or 40 years old or whatever people think they're going to do with scientific help. No, it doesn't work that way. The, the best solution then is to make your life count. Count your days. Verse 12. Let's all read this verse together. This is a powerful verse. Ready out loud. Begin it. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. During the course of his sermon, a preacher wanted to emphasize the brevity of life. He took a long pause, scanned the audience. Every member of this church is going to die, he proclaimed. But to his surprise, a man on the back row responded with a big smile. Kind of took the pastor by surprise, and so he repeated it a second time, this time louder. Every person in this, every member of this church is going to die. The man just grinned even bigger. After the sermon, the pastor went back and found that man he said, why in the world did you smile so big when I said every member of this church is going to die? The man smiled even bigger. He said, because I'm not a member of this church. <laughs> the fact is, whether you're a member of that church or this church or any church, the fact is we need to number our days. We need to make the most of our time and buy up every opportunity that we can. You know, the word opportunity has a unique Latin etymology. If you'll notice in the middle of the word is the word port, P-O-R-T, O-P, port. It is a Greek word, O-B, actually, which means toward. It means toward the port. Opportunity means toward the port. And it suggests a ship taking advantage of the wind so it will arrive safely and with its cargo there at the harbor. A good word. May we take advantage of every wind to get us safely to the port. Take opportunity. Buy them back. The ancient Greek statue depicted a man. You may have seen it. There is a Greek statue of a man with wings on his feet. The name of the statue is Opportunity. If you look more closely, and I looked at it this week because I was intrigued by it, there's a picture of a man with holding uh, scales and wings on his feet and a big poof of hair on his forehead and no hair on his back. And here is, on the back of his head, here's the uh, inscription that is under that. My name is Opportunity. 
Why hast thou wings on thy feet, that I might fly away swiftly? Why hast thou a great forelock, that men may seize me when I come? And why art thou bald and back, that when I am gone by, none can take a hold of me? Opportunity. I don't want anything getting in my way. I want to keep going out and doing what is just. Martin Luther was a great reformer in the 16th century. But Martin Luther's best friend and great co-reformer is less known, but a man who did so much for God, Philip Melanchthon. He kept a record of every wasted moment during the day. At the end of the day, he would mark down every minute that he wasted, and he confessed it to God. No wonder God used him in such a mighty way, using every minute for God. Now, Moses finishes this great chapter with these amazing prayers. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, come in your power. Verse 14. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy. God, I don't want to start this day without the mercy of God. Verse 15. God, make us glad. Give us the joy of the Lord so we can make a difference. Verse 16. Let thy work appear to thy servant. Oh, God, use me for your work. And God, I pray that our children will see the glory of God. Verse 17, establish the work of our hands. God, help us. Help us, God. When I was growing up, I never knew that man wasn't an animal until I was in college. Because when I was in high school especially, I'm sure I was taught it all my years but didn't really realize it until I was in high school, I remember seeing the biology chart, how that there's the animal kingdom and there's the plant kingdom and mankind is the highest form of an animal, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is, mankind is not an animal. They said, well, they're a mammal. <laughs> I don't care what you call them. The fact is, mankind, the Bible says, is made in the very image of God. Only man has a never-dying soul. God has made us unique and delivered, and that's why the Bible says all things have been delivered into our hands to make a difference in this world. Most people are living lives like they're animals, like there's just, you know, get up, look for grass, eat the grass, go to the bathroom, find some more grass, sleep a little bit. I mean, that's what most people, you know, get more grass and bigger grass and nicer grass and no, we are not animals, folks. We are humans. And that's why when we get a glimpse of heaven, it changes everything. With the story I close, there was several years ago a woman, Florence Chadwick, an unbelievable athlete and great swimmer. She was the first woman to have swum between the English Channel. Her next goal was to swim from the Catalina Island down in Southern California to the coastline there by Long Beach. As you know, the Pacific Ocean is very cold, about 50 or so degrees. But she was determined to be the first woman to swim to the mainland of California. It was a very foggy and chilly morning, and she could hardly even see the boats that were accompanying her. And yet still, she swam for 15 straight hours. Every time she begged to get out of the water just because of the sheer energy of the whole thing, her mother, who was in a boat right alongside of her, 
kept encouraging her, saying, you're so close, you can make it. Finally, physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and just had to be pulled out of the water. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered that the shore was less than a half mile away. At the news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog and I was in pain. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Well, brothers and sisters, I say the same thing to all of us here this morning. I think the fog and the pain of life sometimes is so overwhelming. But if we will just look, that shore of heaven is so close. And we're going to make it. Don't let this world discourage you. God, give us his grace. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.